0: Here, guys, can you just give a wave so everybody can see? They look about four or five. Is that? Yeah, when she was about that age, we went out canoeing together. I was in the back of the canoe uh, uh, steering, and she was sitting in the front of the canoe with her little life jacket on, and I wanted my kids to learn how to canoe, and actually she wasn't bad for being about five years old, and the water was nice and smooth, But as we kept canoeing, a storm came up. We were out in the canoe, sort of pretty far out in the lake. And the storm got worse and worse. The wind began to blow, waves came on what's usually a pretty calm lake. And I began to really struggle to try and bring our canoe into shore. And my daughter was sitting at the front and of course the canoe was bobbing around because she was so small and she kept dipping her little paddle in and I was just saying, oh Lord, please help us just get into shore, get into shore. And then my daughter turned around to me and she said, are you going to help me or what? I think we've all felt that. And I think... You'll recognize how similar the feelings of Peter, the author of the letter that we're writing it, uh, looking at today, was to the feelings of my daughter. We in fact have several stories where Peter also finds himself out in a boat and also looks to our Savior and says, are you going to help me or What? When the storm came up suddenly and Jesus is asleep in the boat. When Peter bravely steps across and then finds himself sinking. And I think that most of us can relate to what both my daughter and Peter were experiencing. This feeling of not being quite as strong as you thought you were feeling that things are getting out of control and not knowing what to do, and wondering why the person who's supposed to be in charge isn't doing anything, or seemingly isn't doing anything. And I think the global pandemic that we have all been living through has caused these feelings to rise within us more often than we would like to admit. And that's why we're looking at this letter, I believe. Because we want to know what to do with this gnawing anxiety. (laughs) This constant fear that we keep trying to push underwater like balloons. So Peter is offering his people hope. Now his people were living in a time of severe persecution. Intense suffering. And so he begins with these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now the passage we're going to be looking at in chapter 3, which was read so well to us by our friend, brings us back to the theological understanding of the living hope that Peter is describing throughout his letter, that he's offering to a people who are facing severe persecution. And as we read this letter, we may be thinking to ourselves, yeah, I understand why they were living in fear. I understand why they had this constant anxiety because they were experiencing real suffering. But friends, look within please because we all live with this fear it expresses itself in different ways but as Mark Twain said none of us are getting out of this alive so if we think we're avoiding death here because we're not being persecuted as Christians if we think we've come through a global pandemic and just gone, phew, made it, we are still living with the reality of suffering and death. So what do we do with this? Well, we don't do what Peter does throughout this whole letter. We don't usually lead by leaning in to the suffering and death. Well, certainly not here in Canada. What we have more of a tendency to do is run away, sometimes run away headlong, and avoid, and deny. And if you think I'm not being realistic, tell me the last time you felt excited about sharing how old you were with someone. Mm? Denial, perhaps? Or let's go a bit more deeper. Let's get a bit more serious. Someone I know and love, very close to, is living in fourth stage cancer right now. And it's amazing to me how many good, solid Christians come to visit her. And when she shares with them how excited she is about seeing her Savior very, very soon. How inevitably she's going to be joining him any day. Do you know what they say to her? Don't talk like that. Don't talk like that. Now, I can understand if people who didn't know Jesus Christ came and visited her and said that because denial and avoidance is actually their best bet. <laughs> but us? Why is it that as a church, We still find ourselves in a place where we have to deny. It reminds me a lot of a story involving, once again, our author, Peter. And Jesus is trying to do the same thing that my friend was doing to let them know that he's going to be dying soon, that he's going to have to suffer. And we read this story in the gospel in the Gospel of Matthew, and it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, mortal concerns, concerns of people that don't have any hope. Is this actually the best we have to offer as a church? Denial? Don't talk that way? This should never happen to you? You shouldn't have to suffer. Why do we still get so angry when as Christians Christ leads us into a place of suffering? We should be avoiding all that. That should be our hope, shouldn't it? If this is the really the best and the only thing we have to offer a suffering, dying, fearful world, then as Paul says in his letter, our preaching And our faith is useless because people need more than denial and avoidance. And denial is not hope. Denial is delusion. And we should line up with the people who are buying the anti-age cream and the people who are celebrating their 17th, 29th birthday. But our people are longing for more. They're dying for something real. Do you know why the church grew so quickly in the early days? Because people actually believed that Jesus Christ suffered and rose again, that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. They believed it so much that when suffering and death came to them, they did not run headlong into avoidance and denial. They stood boldly and bravely and forgave the people that were hurting them and spoke words of life to the people who were killing them. I had the privilege of meeting with A group of believers from Yemen and those people they suffer persecution and death every day to proclaim their faith in Jesus means certain imprisonment and probable death and when I sat down with those people and I said how can I pray for you never once did they say please pray that we won't be persecuted anymore the prayer that they said is, please give us more and more opportunity to share the faith, the hope, the living hope that they have in a resurrected Lord. Friends, we've got to speak against this delusion that somehow we will never die. We will never suffer. We've got to lean into the place where people are fearful and anxious and hurting with a hope that is unshakable. That she can shatter that delusion. We have to shatter one more delusion if we're really gonna experience the living hope that Peter holds out for us in his letter. And that delusion is this. Do you see that? Impossible is nothing. And we have Muhammad Ali in the background there. Now this is pervasive in our society. If you work hard enough, if you are smart enough, if you are rich enough, if you are powerful enough, there is nothing you can't do. And in fact, we teach this to our children from the time they're small. And we think that this is a good thing that we're giving them hope by telling them, honey, there's nothing you can't do if you put your mind to it. How often have we heard those words told to children? When we look at our teenagers and our young adults, we say, come on, honey, just work harder. You can achieve your goals. You can be anything, you can do anything. Friends, that's a lie put out by marketers. (laughs) Okay, sports is a huge, huge pusher of this delusion. Scripture doesn't say that. There's a passage where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Again, and Peter, the author of our letter, I'm sure is in their midst, and he says, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The most dangerous lie is a half truth. The most destructive lie is one that has a little bit of truth mixed into it. So when we see something that says impossible is nothing, we say, oh, no, 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 no. You've forgotten the most important part of the message there. Our message of hope is not, honey, you can do anything. Our message of hope is God can do anything. With God, all things are possible. You see, our society is a wishful meritocracy. This is what we call it, a meritocracy. When everybody is taught that if they work hard enough, if they're smart enough, they will achieve success. This is supposed to be helpful, hopeful. But what it actually does, friends, is it puts a burden on all of us that we can't possibly bear. That we were never designed to live out. We were always designed to be in loving union with an omnipotent, mighty Father. And when we live with Him, everything He has planned and purposed for us. To do we can achieve that's our message of hope but you see when this philosophy of meritocracy comes out as a philosophy and it's sitting on the shelves right beside the bible these self-help books and these positive thinking books i am strong i am good i am worthy i am With Christ, I am strong. With Christ, I am good. With Christ, I am worthy. When this meritocracy is imposed upon our theology and our understanding, something really dangerous happens, friends. We actually think, like the disciples that Jesus is speaking to, that we can save ourselves. Now, we wouldn't say that because it's not okay to say that within the church. But within us, we feel this push, constant push to please God, to serve him more. And we feel the heaviness of knowing that it's never going to be enough. In our life, in our faith, what we've done to our people is we have left them alone thinking that they just have to try harder they just have to work harder they just have to be better but friends this is the living hope that peter is holding out salvation is not as jesus tells his disciples is not about rich being people being successful it's not about clever people getting it It's not about hardworking people achieving it. It's not even about bad people becoming good or good people becoming better. It is about dead people becoming alive in Christ. That is our message of hope. And we can't allow it to be diluted to become just another self-help, positive thinking philosophy we need to proclaim this message. You can't do it. You can't do it, but Christ has done it. Christ has done what you couldn't possibly do. Peter says, Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. You can't do it, and that should make you hopeful. You don't have to do it. That should lift the weight off you. But we do need to understand, really fully understand, what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. That statement that Peter makes at the beginning of our passage, Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. In a narrow sense, is considered in theological circles an understanding of what was accomplished on the cross as penal substitution. Okay, you don't have to worry about the terms, but for those of you who like theological terms, it's called penal substitution. And what it means is he paid the penalty for us. He took the punishment for us. And that's absolutely true and accurate, but it is not complete actually was accomplished on the cross, friends, which shatters the delusions that people live with and gives them true and solid hope, is what we call Christ is victor. Christ is victor. Peter says Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. But then at the end of that passage, you'll note he says this. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Paul describes it another way, friends, bringing these two realities of what was accomplished on the cross in these verses from uh, Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, penal substitution, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. But here is Christ the victor. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." Friends, Jesus Christ did not just take a penalty for us. He didn't just take the hit for us. He broke the power of sin and death. And that makes a difference, not just someday, although it does make a difference someday. It releases within us eternal life, now, today. That's why Peter constantly throughout his letter, uses the phrase, born again. He remembers this discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the rich, successful guy who thought he was going to make it just because he was so clever and had a bit of money. And he is so surprised when Jesus says, no, this isn't about your success. This isn't about your accomplishment. You must be born again. We must experience eternal life within us if we are able to proclaim this message to those around us. And this is the final point, friends, that Peter makes in this passage. This proclamation of life. Now, I just wanna do a really quick disclaimer. If any of you were confused as to what Peter was talking about when he was talking about the people in Noah's time and Christ going back and preaching to them, yeah, it's confusing. And we're not gonna be delving into all the implications of Christ going back and preaching to them and where did he go to preach to them, and that's not the point that Peter's making here. The point that Peter is making Is held in that those first few words after being made alive after being made alive let's just read that passage after being made alive Christ went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. After being made alive, Christ took this message of hope to the darkest, most desperate place imaginable. I want us to understand kids, are your ears plugged? Noah's ark is a dark, dark story. It's probably one of the darkest, most desperate moments of human history, and I'm not quite sure why we share it so freely with toddlers. But maybe it gets back to that whole denial thing. Because when I taught this story to small children in Russia who come from a very different culture, a culture that actually knows fear (laughs) they were shocked their little faces looked at me with horror and I remember one little boy finally saying everybody died and I sort of went no no but the animals the cute little animals (laughs) two by two remember and then another little girl goes everybody died And I realized that this is a hard story. I want you to try and imagine the depravity that would cause a loving God to regret that he had made the people that he loved. I want you to try and imagine the darkness and the desperation the heartbreak Has God decided his only possible recourse was to end their lives that's what we're dealing with here friends that's the level of darkness and if you can't even imagine that level of darkness I want you to think about Syria and northern Iraq I want you to think many years ago to Rwanda this is the level of darkness we're describing friends and although right now we feel pretty immune to that, which allows us to look at a story like Noah's Ark and think maybe there's, it's a bit cute, that's real. And the beautiful part of what Peter is doing here is he is saying, think of the darkest, most desperate place you can and go there. Go there virtually go there in prayer or maybe even travel there but know this christ is there and he is proclaiming life he is proclaiming life in the darkest and the most desperate situations and friends i have had the privilege of going to these places of walking the streets of aleppo of sitting with the ISIS brides, the Yazidi ISIS brides in northern Iraq. And the only reason I can do that is because, praise God, I'm born again. I have an eternal life that is so unshakable within me that I can lean into those dark places and know, without a doubt, that Christ is there proclaiming life. I don't know how it all works in human history, but this one thing I know, friends. You must be born again. You can't just know a philosophy. You can't just know some positive self-talk. You must be born again to experience the eternal life that will take away the fear, the anxiety, that without which will not go away. You might be able to deny it and avoid it for a while, but I promise you it will not go away. It won't be enough. And Christ offers so much more. And then the call to action for us, his church, being made alive, go and proclaim. Go to those people that you know right now are living with fear, are living with anxiety, are living in really dark, difficult situations, either in your own neighborhood or somewhere in our world, and proclaim life. This, Is our hope. Let's bow our heads. Father, you love us so much that you sent your Son Jesus Christ to share in our sufferings. to face death, and then to break its power by rising again. Christ, we proclaim you to be victorious. And now in these moments of reflection, friends, I would invite you to just think for a few moments about two questions. In what ways, both big and small, could the truth and reality of eternal life change your priorities, your fears, and your choices? And then I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to think about your neighborhood and the world. What's the most darkest, difficult situation you can think of in the world right now? What would life and redemption look like in this place? Let's spend some moments in reflection. Thank you.